this morning. Second Samuel chapter number 14. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Joab sent to Tekoa, and fetched thence a wise woman, and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner, and put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king, and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground, and did obeisance, and said, Help, O king. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and mine husband is dead. And mine handmaid had two sons, and they strove to, they two strove together in the field. And there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thine handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him, for the life of his brother whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also. And so they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. I thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that in this service He'd be magnified, that He'd be lifted up. Lord, that each and every person here would see Him for who He is, the magnificent Son of God that's been coronated and enthroned and to whom all power and authority and judgment has been delivered up to. Father, we love You. We thank You for all that You've done. I pray that if there's any amongst us lost and undone, they'd see their need of Calvary. Any amongst us backslidden, they'd see their need of a close communion with You. Father, we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As we've read in 2 Samuel chapter number 14, I'm very interested in verse number 14. Let's read it once more together. This woman of Tekoa is speaking and makes this statement the profoundness of which is baffling. She says, For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. Yet doth He devise means that His banished 
be not expelled from him. Go with me, if you will, back in your mind to Israel. As uh, the aged King David is walking upon his palace balcony, and he looks with a wistful glance out towards a land by the name of Geshur, and he thinks about a son that he has, his secondborn, by the name of Absalom. Absalom in the Word of God, his name literally means the peace of his father. But we found that he, like many others in Scripture, that his name betrays his character. Uh, For his character was not to be the peace of his father. Because of David's sins and because of what he had done, God had prophesied that the sword would never depart from his household. And surely, as you look through the history of King David, the sword never did depart. We find that uh, David's firstborn, who was named Amnon, his name means faithful, uh, that he did harm unto his half-sister Tamar. And when he did so, Absalom rose up in vengeance and in hatred, and he ordered that a feast be uh, gathered together for the sons of David. All of the brethren came unto that feast, and he told his servants, he said, when you see Amnon, uh, that he's Marry with wine, you take uh, courage then and kill him, for I've commanded you to do so. And so Absalom does this. He slays his own brother Amnon. And when this happens, he's forced to flee into exile into a place called Geshur, a Philistine city. And imagine how David's heart must have broken as he looked across the plains and thought about his little boy. Could you imagine if it was your son, if it was your daughter, departed from you in exile, banished? From your presence. David had a general by the name of Joab. Joab, uh, for all of his uh, swarthy attitude, for all of his uh, coarse nature, he had a keen sensitivity about the, uh, the spiritual matters and the emotional matters of a person. And the Bible says that as Joab looked upon his king, looked upon King David, he could see the heartache and the heartbreak within that great king's face. He knew that David longed for his son Absalom. He knew that he wanted his boy to be back with him. But David was presented with a problem. Absalom was a murderer. And by judicial means, Absalom deserved to die. And so the king is in a strait. He knows that justice demands that Absalom die, but his love and his heart for him longs for him to come back home. It's in this state that Absalom stays away for several years from the presence of his father. Joab, seeing his heartache, sends for a wise woman of a place called Tekoa. And he tells this woman, says, I want you to put on the garbs of death and the garbs of mourning. I want you to prepare this speech. And he told her just what to say. He said, I want you to go in unto David and I want you to tell David this story. That you had two sons and that they were out in the field one day striving with each other. No one was there to separate them. And that one of your sons rose up and killed the other son. And now your family is demanding that you deliver the son that's the murderer unto them. Plead for the king to show mercy. Appeal to his tenderness, to his kindness. And so she did. She goes into the presence of the king. She lays out all of her sad story. And the king gives this ruling. He says, forget justice. Let's show mercy. He says, no matter what happens, no one will touch a hair on your son's head. You have my personal guarantee as the king. No one will harm your child. This woman, I can just imagine the wry smile that she gave him, said, oh, king, let me just say one more word. He says, okay. And uh, she says, if you feel that way about my son, why don't you feel that way about your son? Like a dagger to the heart, it hits David all of a sudden. You know, it must have frustrated David. Nathan did the same thing. I'm sure David sometimes wondered, why can't folks just talk to me? Amen. 
David gives forth the sentence that Absalom is to be brought home. Now, I'm not going to preach to you this morning on Absalom, but that is the context and setting of what she says. She shows us these great truths concerning life, that you and I are as water spilt out on the ground, that God is no respecter of persons, but even God Himself, when there was no way, the Bible says He made a way. You see, when I see Absalom, I see you and I in a lot of ways. When I see David, I see God in a lot of ways. Now, I'm thankful that where David made a mistake because he had no means to execute judgment, but also to bring home Absalom, that for you and I, there's been a way made. There's been means that have been devised for us to be at peace with God. I'm thankful that uh, what David, what cost him 20,000 men of Israel and the heartache and terror when Absalom came home, uh, he led a, a revolution and a mutiny against David and kicked him out of his own throne. I'm thankful that what was a mistake for David because God is able, God has devised means for you and I. You see, when I see Absalom, I see myself banished from the fellowship and the communion of God. I see myself as having once been an exile that's been brought home to have fellowship with Him. And can I give you just a few truths this morning that this wise woman of Tekoa relates to us? Can I say, first off, we see the reality of death Spoken of. What's the first thing she says? For we must needs die. Now I'm going to tell you this morning, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I am telling you something that a lot of folks don't want to admit, and that's that death is a universal truth. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you've got. I don't care how good looking, how bad looking, how rich, how poor, how fat, how skinny, how popular, how hated. Death is a universal truth. Notice that she said, we must needs die. She didn't say some of us is going to die. She didn't say those that ain't got enough money, they're going to die. She didn't say those that live terrible lives, they're going to die. But she said, we, an all-inclusive word. Death is a universal principle. Ecclesiastes 9, uh, 2 and 3 says this to us. Uh, Solomon, the son of David, writing about a, a vain and empty world. And by the way, that's what this world is without God. It's all vanity. It's all emptiness. It ain't no wonder that the suicide rate is what it is. It ain't no wonder that homes are falling apart. It ain't no wonder we've kicked God out of every facet of society and we're reaping what we've sown. Listen to what the book of Ecclesiastes says. Solomon takes an inventory of life and he says this, All things come alike to all. There's one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. He that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. You see, the truth is every single one of us are going to face death one day. doesn't matter what your circumstances. Death is a universal principle. This wise woman of Tekoa is trying to get David to understand there's going to come a day when he's going to have to face God. There's going to come a day. We must die. David Absalom is going to die one day. You're going to die one day. All of us, we must needs die. Death is a universal thing, but I'd say that death is an unavoidable thing. She says must needs die. Not maybe we will, maybe we won't. We must needs die. It's interesting. As I examine this passage, you know what I found? I found that the same word is used both for die and for must needs. 
It's almost as though she spoke of a double death. She said, every one of us, we're going to die the death. We're going to die the death. What death? The death that is common to man. It's unavoidable. It was said once of uh, John Rockefeller at the end of his life. Uh, he knew he was getting ready to die. The doctors had diagnosed him. It was just a matter of time. He said, I'll give up to the half of my fortune for anyone that can add a year to my life. That offer left unclaimed. Because when death comes for you, it's come for you. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die. That's an appointment you will keep. You will keep. Now you say, well, what about the rapture? Well, yes. Those of us that know Christ as our Lord and Savior, there may come a day when He raptures us out. We do look for that. But the fact is, if you've never accepted Christ, you are going to meet death one day. You can do your best. We live in a day of great medical science. You know, I'm not against medical science. I think it's a wonderful thing. But I do think we're getting to the idea sometimes that we can just keep on a living and a living and a living and a living. And I think sometimes we think if we just pop a few more pills, uh, if we think if we just have a few more uh, surgeries, if we just uh, change our diet a little bit, if we just do this, if we just do that, that somehow we will stave off the inevitable. fact is that there are billions, probably trillions of dollars spent every year on folks trying to avoid death, and not a single one of them can. You will keep that appointment. One day you will die. We see the reality of death, But I want you to notice, secondly, she speaks of the resoluteness of death. What does she say? She says, we are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. There's a few analogies like this when it talks about our words in the book of Ecclesiastes being scattered to the wind. There's a few things, listen, that once it's done, you can't undo. And death is one of those things. I'm interested in two, two things that she says here. Notice, first off, she says that the water is spilt, almost as though it's inadvertent. And can I say that there are a fair share of people in this world that they do know within uh, some reasonable estimate when they're going to die. The doctors come along and say, you've got uh, one month or two months or six months or uh, five months or whatever it may be, although really they don't even know. But sometimes we do get the feeling that we know. But can I say to you that there's lots of folks too that death seizes upon them like a robber, like a burglar, like a murderer, just in the middle of the night. They're not expecting it. They weren't planning it. They never dreamed that death would seize upon them them in the way that it did. One old preacher said this, said that death is going to come upon me so suddenly it'll probably take my breath away. <laughs> At the end of the day, no one's expecting it. It doesn't matter who you are, no one's expecting it. Death comes the old and the young alike. First funeral I ever preached was a 75-day-old infant. You could have put him in a bread box. Piney! No one expected that child to die. The next funeral I preached was of my aged grandfather. I could take you the full spectrum of all things in between. There's some, it could be, and you say, Preacher, you're trying to scare it. No, no. You see, if the, if, the, if the guy that gives the lectures on heart disease comes to your work and gives this kind of talk, then it's preventive medicine. But when the preacher says that he's trying to scare us, the fact is both things are true this morning. Uh, the fact is you don't know there may be some here today that won't be here tonight. Not because they don't want to be, but because the mortician's got them. There could be some that's here right now that have left this world come next week. We do not know. Death seizes upon men. No matter what they do to stave it off, there's nothing that can prevent it. We see that the water was spilt, but I'd say too that the water was spent. 
Isn't that what the truth is that they're trying to say here? The water is spent. cannot be gathered back up. Try it as you may. If you go out and pour a bucket, a gallon, if you go out and pour a bathtub full or a swimming pool full out onto the ground, it won't be long before it's gone. Do your best. Gather it up, but you can't. Once it's done, it's done. In many ways, this life is a probationary period determining where we'll spend eternity. In many ways, this life is just a test for the result of what's going to happen. And do you know that, like it or not, when you leave this world, the prayers of all the saints and priests in this world, uh, the money of a thousand treasuries that's given on your behalf, nothing can change your eternal destiny. How you leave this world is how you stay. Job said, as a tree falleth in the woods. Once it's fell, it doesn't move. And the truth is, when you leave this world, whatever state you leave it in, that's what you've left it in. You say, preacher, you're preaching at the law system. I'm preaching to anybody this morning. But no doubt there's folks in this room. In fact, no doubt I'd say most of us would say, I want to do more with my life for Jesus Christ. Well, you better get busy. Because once you leave this world, that's all you're going to have done. That's it. Once you've died, once your breath has been taken, once your heart has stopped, once you've left this life, you'll not witness to another individual. The book of Luke makes that clear, doesn't it? The rich man lifted up his eyes in hell and he pleaded with Abraham and said, "Uh, let me go back and warn my brethren or send Lazarus to go warn them. And uh, you know what Abraham said? Abraham said, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. So there's a great chasm between you and between me, and you can't come to me and I can't come to you. Death is a final thing. That water's spent. Every week, just this week, I was at a funeral, and every week the water is poured out. No doubt before this next week is done, you'll hear of some individual whose water has been poured out. No doubt before I, I could go back, there's folks that you sit in these pews, but their water's been poured out. There's folks that used to come through those doors, but their water's been poured out. Their life is done. That light has been extinguished. And now whatever testimony and witness they were, be it good, be it bad, it's done. We see that the water is spent. The resoluteness of death. But I want you to notice, thirdly, the righteousness of God is spoken of. He says, neither doth God respect any person. Now, why is it that the woman of Tekoa said this to David? Now, she's getting ready to say, but God has devised a means for His banish uh, to come home. But the context is she's saying, look, David, God doesn't respect any persons. It wouldn't matter to God whether Absalom was your son or not. I'm sure that David was worried about accusations that he was patronizing and uh, catering to his family. I'm sure he was worried that if he brought Absalom home, someone would cry out and say, unjust, unjust, unjust. If it had been me, if it had been my child or my brethren, David wouldn't have brought them home. And so this woman looks at David and says, listen, God's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter to God who and what you are. It doesn't matter how prominent you may be. Nothing. Listen, the holiness of God demands, demands sacrifice for sin. He's no respecter of person. You won't find another religion in the entire world that has the, the vicarious substitutionary suffering of a Savior for the sins of those that are adherents to it. You won't find it in Islam. You won't find it in Buddhism, Hinduism. You won't find it in any other quote-unquote religion in the world where, where, where even a prophet dies vicariously 
for the sufferings of the people, let alone the Son of God Himself. This is a truth unique to Bible Christianity. You'll find it nowhere else. In fact, what you find in other religions is you find it common that the adherents are to die and sacrifice themselves uh, for the deity which they worship. Oh, what a God we have, though, that He would send His only begotten Son to die in our place for us. That's the difference between Bible Christianity and every other false religion in the entire world. World, God's no respecter of person. His holiness demands sacrifice. The Muslim God says, if you ask for forgiveness, I'll give you forgiveness. And yet there's been no sacrifice. Uh, the Buddhist and the Hinduist, uh, they say, well, you just merely enlighten yourself, meditate. Give an offering, the Hindus say, to one of the 180 million gods. That they, that's not an exaggeration either. In fact, that's probably less than how many that they have. They have more than that. And they say, you just give an offering to that God and it'll atone uh, for your soul. But God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans chapter 2 says that those that are under the law shall perish by the law. And those that are without the law shall perish without the law. God, let me read it for you. Let me read it for you. Look what it says. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. God is a just God. And His holiness that has been slighted and offended. You say, I don't care what God thinks. Well, you better care what God thinks because He's God. He's the one that has the control over your life and mine. He's the one we answer to. And His holiness has been offended. You say, well, that's petty. Well, you're not God, so you wouldn't understand anyway. Can I say that again? I, 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 don't, know, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I... And then I don't... I, it, <laughs> you wouldn't understand anyway because you're not God. His holiness don't mean a lot to us. You know why? Because we have no concept of holiness. We have no concept of holiness. Do you understand that the Word of God is that by which the worlds were framed? Do you understand that the sky is blue, the grass is green, up is up, down is down, based upon the validity and truth and righteousness of God's Word? And so for God's Word to be disobeyed and slighted, it's a major offense. And you and I, by our very existence, have slighted the Word of God, for we are depraved and sin-fallen. And as such... Holiness demands a sacrifice. I'm sure David thought to himself, well, I'd love to bring him home, but justice demands that I do something. The woman of Tekoa says, listen, God understands that. God understands that. If anyone understands it, God understands it. But we see not only that His holiness demands sacrifice, we see that His heart desired salvation. Could you imagine what it must have felt like to be David? Oh, how he longed to see his boy's face. Well, I, I mean, it amazes me. You read through the word, you read through the aristocracies in Europe, they barely even knew their children. You know? I mean, they barely even knew their children. Uh, the mama, she'd have the baby, a nurse would take it away, she'd see it in 18 years when it got coronated. That was just the way it was. But that's not the way that this family was. David longed for him, David loved Absalom. When he calls Absalom back home, Absalom is not allowed in the king's presence. The Bible says for two years. For two years. How it must have broken David's heart. David knew he had to do something to show that judgment was being served. Finally, Absalom 
Communists don't sound like some kids that you've known. Absalom wanted to get uh, Joab's attention so that he'd get a message to David. Joab wouldn't come to him. Absalom said, well, set his barley fields on fire. He'll come to that. And sure enough, he did. And Joab goes to King David and says, Absalom wants to see your face. David says, send my boy to me. Absalom comes back in. David falls on him and kisses him. It says in the next chapter that Absalom began conspiring to steal the throne from David. But still yet David, even after he had been banished, after he had been sent away, Absalom was riding one day uh, with his men. Absalom had uh, big old long hair, the Bible says. It got caught, tangled up in a branch. He fell and it broke his neck. They gave the news to David. Surely you'd think David would have been jaded. Wouldn't you think so? That David would have thought, that boy of mine, he's no good. He's no good. He's stolen the throne from me. They come to David and they say, Absalom is dead. He cries out and says, Absalom. Absalom. Oh, that I had died in your place. He still had a daddy's heart. He still had a daddy's heart. There's nothing David wanted more than to bring Absalom home. Can I just clue you in on something? Oh man, this ought to, I don't know if your blesser is working, but we're going to find out. Can I say to you that God the Father, in spite of all of His justice, all of His stoic holiness, all of His resolute judgment and justice, though we had sinned, though we had offended Him, Though the Bible says we were the enemies of God, we hated God, though we had nothing to do and wanted nothing to do with God, though by every right, by every signification, you and I, we should have been sent to a devil's hell. That's what we deserve. That would have been right. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. He so loved, but God commendeth His love towards us. When we were the enemies, when we hated God, God still loved us. You see, His heart desired for us to be saved. His heart desired that we might be reconciled unto Him. His heart desired, His heart longed and broke for sin fallen man that had been created in His image, that had walked with Him in the cool of the garden, that had been in sweet communion and fellowship with Him. The heart of God broke and said, I must find a way that they can have fellowship with me. We see the righteousness of God. But I want you to notice the recourse that God took. I'm interested in what it says here. It says, yet deviseth he means. Well, that's interesting. You know why that word deviseth? That same word is found in the book of Genesis chapter 15. You know what it is? It's the word counteth. Counteth. Isn't that interesting? You say, what does it say about it in Genesis 15? The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That same word. How about that? That same word. It was counted unto him for righteousness. And in that same way, the Bible says that God deviseth means God found a way. What was his way? I want to notice first off, it was to acknowledge the sinner. It was to acknowledge the sinner. You know where David went wrong? In that David had mercy without judgment. That's where David went wrong. He brought Absalom home, but he did nothing to judge him for the murder of his brethren. But the Bible says that God doesn't deal with us that way. God acknowledges that we're sinners. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter what you think about you, God knows you're a sinner. No matter what the world says about you, God knows you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Every person born in this world is born a sinner. We may not like it. We may not agree with it. It may not fit with our theology or our philosophy, but that's the truth of the matter. Every one of us are sinners. God acknowledges that we're sinners. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He acknowledges that we're sinners. You know, a person will never get saved till they acknowledge that they're a sinner. Oh, I don't mean till they acknowledge that they're bad and so is everyone else. But I mean when they acknowledge that before God they're guilty of death. That we're guilty of death and that one day we're going to answer to God. Not just for what we've done, but for who we are. One day we're going to answer to Him. Until we acknowledge that, we'll never get born again. God acknowledges the sinner. Uh, this woman of Tekoa said that He deviseth means what? That His banished be not expelled from Him. He doesn't just ignore that they're banished. He acknowledges it. He acknowledges the sinner, but then what does He do? He atones for the sin. He atones for the sin. Uh, let's look at it. Romans chapter 3. Let's read just a little further. We all quote Romans 3.23. We all know it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But do you ever go a little, little bit past that? Listen to what it says. Verse 24 says this. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now listen to this. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You say, what does God do about this sin problem? God sent His only begotten Son to die for that sin problem. God didn't dismiss our sin. God didn't ignore it. God didn't excuse it away. God didn't say, well, it's really not all that bad. It's antiquated. You know, I wrote that book so many years ago in the Bronze Age, and now you're living in a day where you're so enlightened that it really is irrelevant. No, God doesn't do any of that. God doesn't excuse our sin. What does God do? God says, I won't excuse it, but I'll send my son to die in your place. Somebody must die. My holiness and my righteousness must be satisfied. You know what the Bible says in Isaiah 53? That when he saw the travail of his soul, that he was satisfied. He was satisfied. When Christ died for your sin and for mine, the the holiness of God was satisfied. He died for each and every sinner. You say, does that mean everybody's saved? No, 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 no. That doesn't mean everybody's saved. But what that means is when Christ died on the cross of Calvary, the righteous indignation of God against a lost and dying world was abased because of the pure and perfect and sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, all of us owed a debt. You say, what did Jesus do? He paid everybody's debt. You say, what does that mean for me? That means if our debt's going to be squared, we're going to have to go to Him. Amen? Uh, that, that means that the righteousness of God has been satisfied, but our debt is in new hands. If you reject Him that is paid your debt, He'll reject you and you'll pay your debt. You'll die and go to hell. But if you'll call upon Him and ask Him to forgive you of your sin and to save you, He'll say, well, hey, that debt's already been paid. I've already bought you. You already belong to me. And He'll forgive you of your sins. He atones for the sin. That way God can be just 
His righteousness has been satisfied. But he can also be justified. His mercy now has beneficiaries. I want to say one final thing and I'm done. We see uh, here in this passage the recourse of God. What did he do? He made a way. But I want you to notice finally the reconciliation of the banished. What does it say in our text here? It says that his banished be not expelled from him. What interesting language. That is banished, be not expelled from. I told you as I studied that passage, I I found something interesting. Now let me be very clear in what I'm about to say. I believe that it's translated exactly how it needs to be translated. Amen? I believe every jot and tittle of it is perfect and inspired. Not just inspired, I believe it's preserved. I believe that it says exactly what it needs to say because I believe that this woman was saying what it said. Uh, What he's saying is Absalom's been banished from you, David. But even God, those that are banished uh, from him, those that don't have immediate fellowship with him, uh, he's devised a way that that doesn't have to stay the way it is. They won't be expelled from him eternally. But you know what I found as as I studied this? I found that the word for banished, you know where else it's used? It's used right here as the word expelled. I found that the word expelled is used elsewhere. You know where it is? Right here. And it says the word banished. It's almost as though the wise woman was saying this. God's devised a way that is banished. Be not banished anymore. God's devised a way that is expelled. Be not expelled anymore. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Why do you bring that up? Because whenever David brought Absalom back, he had to spend two years without seeing his face. I told you, see, this isn't a perfect type. There are no perfect types. David made some mistakes. David messed up in some ways. But God, He doeth all things right. You and I, God didn't just save us just to bring us an extra notch up on the ladder. God didn't just save us to keep us barely out of hell. When God saved you and I, He saved us that we might no longer be a child of hell, but now we might in His image shine. God has taken us out of the family of the devil and put us into the family of God. God has taken us out of the miry clay and the lowest of the low down in the pits of despair and sin and iniquity. And now the book of Ephesians says we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. I'm saying God made a radical change when He saved us. This word reconciliation. Don't you think that's a fitting word for what we're reading? Reconciliation. I thought of one passage And I'll read it to you and say a word and I'll be done. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter number 16. Leviticus, chapter number 16. I thought about the circumstances. Here's Absalom. He's in exile. Because of his sins, he has been sent away. Because of his unrighteousness, he's been sent into a wilderness to die. Now, what could bring him home? The book of Leviticus presents to us the order and responsibility of the Levitical priests. Every year on the Day of Atonement, we call it Yom Kippur on modern calendars. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a bullock for the sins of the people. But it wasn't just one sacrifice that took place on that day. Listen to what the book of Leviticus chapter 16 says. Look at verse number 5. It's speaking of Aaron, and it says, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door 
of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, look down at verse number 20. The Bible says, And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, oh, I could park there and preach, friend, and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. You see, in the Old Testament, there'd be two sacrifices on that day. One would be the one that would be offered there in the holy place, the holy of holies. But then the Bible teaches they'd have. And we use this terminology today. Uh, You've probably said before, I feel like a scapegoat or so-and-so. There's just a scapegoat because this other goat would be brought live before the Lord. Aaron would take both his hands, lay them on his head, pronounce all of the sins that the children of Israel had committed. And thereby, in doing that, he would bestow upon them, he would transfer upon that goat all of the sins of the people. And then because they, the children of Israel, were unclean, they had no right, no place in the camp. There was no reason they should stay in the camp. There's no reason they should dwell where God dwelt. But now Aaron, he'd take those sins and put them on that goat. And then they'd take that goat out into the wilderness. And now the banishment that the children of Israel deserved would be taken by this scapegoat. He'd go out into the wilderness to die alone. This pictured for us Jesus Christ. As every sacrifice pictures Jesus Christ. Who the Bible says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, uh, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Speaking of Him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The Bible says, the, the psalmist said, As far as the east is from the west, so the Lord hath separated your iniquity from you. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 17, God makes this promise. He says, For their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You you ever wonder why it was uh, that the burial of Christ is spoken of as being part of the gospel? We don't ever talk about it. We say uh, that Christ died and rose again the third day in power and glory. And that's true. Uh, but the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, uh, For I deliver unto you that which also I received, how that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Why is it that the Bible talks about Him being buried? Why is that so significant? Because that burial pictured for us the action and responsibility of the scapegoat and that Christ took our sins upon Himself when into a land uninhabited, into a wilderness, into a desert place, carried our sins so far away from us that the mind of God can never find them again. He took them away. He took them away. He took them away. He took them away from us. You see, He was banished so that you wouldn't have to be banished. You say, what happened to that scapegoat? That scapegoat went out in the wilderness and died. What happened to the Son of God? He went out into the wilderness and he died. 
You say, what's the difference, preacher? That scapegoat, he never come back. <laughs> but Jesus, Jesus, he rose again in power the third day. He rose again in majesty and in glory the third day. He's paid for our sins. He's paid the price. And now those that have been banished need not be expelled from Him. You say, Preacher, am I banished? If you've never accepted Christ, you've been banished. Just as I was banished. You were born banished in this world. You were born tainted and corrupted. You say, that's not very nice, preacher. I don't say it to be nice. I say it because I love you. That's the truth. We were all born banished in this world. There's no need that his banished be expelled from him. The scapegoat has took your sin. He's took your banishment, your punishment. And now God can in justice and in mercy. You know what justice and mercy is when you put them together? That's grace. That's grace. Justice is when uh, grace is when justice and mercy met at Calvary. That's what grace is. And now you can be redeemed from your sins. You need not die and go to hell. You can be saved eternally, effectually, and by His grace this morning.